Hello, I'm Michael Chakraberti. And I'm Mark Watson. And welcome back to Menkind, where we chat to a range of brilliant guests about masculinity. Some of them are men, some of them aren't men, and some of them aren't particularly bothered either way. We're interested in men. Yes, obviously you are. And what makes them tick? Where does masculinity come from? How does it affect us? And how could we be better? We might not get a final answer, but we'll have a bloody good go at it. Won't we, Michael? Oh, we'll do our best. Hello, Michael here. Mark's not here like he normally is because he is in what some might call Swindon. But Swindon has internet, I hear you cry. Uh, yes, I agree with you. But he's very busy doing touring things and he did look out for me when I was on the marathon. So it's just me this morning welcoming you here. Feels a bit odd because I have to fill all the dead air myself. But I'm going to stop talking very soon, I promise. We have lovely uh, news though. Lovely Zana and Lauren have joined us on our lovely Patreon. Saying lovely a lot there. Lovely, lovely. If you would also like to join our Patreon, our Patreon is at patreon.com forward slash stroke. We haven't quite worked out what that is yet. Menkind podcast. There's lots of extra bits and bobs on there and you get the extra bonus of feeling like you're supporting us which is because you are isn't that fab anyway i'm gonna stop rambling we have the lovely brilliant susie ruffle who needs not very much more introduction really because she has quite a lengthy one in the podcast so i'm gonna stop talking and introduce susie and mark's also there lovely well hi everyone i'm mark watson as always really i am joined by my friend michael chakraverti and uh, we collectively are joined by someone who is so committed to this episode that she's just literally put her phone on flight mode. Amazing stuff. Hi, Susie <laughs> Ruffle. Hello, Mark. Hello, Michael. Hello, hello. And I've turned off my email, so you've got 100% Ruffle. <laughs> a fair bit of your brain will be on this. We've got a professional on our hands. Properly professional. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I still have the sort of ongoing voices in my head. But other than that, I won't be distracted <laughs> at all. Oh, yeah. None of us can turn off the background chatter in our brains. There is no flight mode for being a human, unfortunately. No. <laughs> Sadly not. It'd be good if there was, like, a reset button. Yeah, it's what sleep is meant to be, isn't it? But it's actually, sleep just throws a lot of other thoughts at you, basically. They just don't make sense. Yeah. Well, this has been an uplifting start. I suppose there's death. Right, hi, Susie. <laughs> um, <laughs> we like to, uh, uh, although many of our listeners will be more than familiar with you, we like to ask people, who are you? How do you describe yourself? I am a person. Is that good enough? Fair? Yeah, fair. that's fine. It's absolutely fair, yeah. Fair start. You can elaborate as much as you want or not. Okay, good. <laughs> the guy sort of jokingly said to me they needed around 20 bullet points about my life. So now I'm, the comedian in me is like, well, that's what I'm going to do. So let's start. <laughs> uh, so my name is Susie Ruffle. I was born in Portsmouth. She is counting on her fingers as well, listeners. <laughs> yeah, I'm not an idiot. They've got 10 fingers. I can do that twice. I'm a stand-up comedian. I'm also a podcaster. Sometimes people call me a broadcaster and I really like that, but I'm not sure if I've done enough to really be considered a broadcaster yet. But it is, I'd say, a big dream. Um, I have a cat called Velma. I have a wife called Alice. I'm 35. I've done a lot of the Edinburgh festivals over the last few years. I have a sort of one foot ET behind me. That We're up to 10. Oh, God. That's 10. And this is what we call committing to the bit, I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this isn't going as well as I hoped. <laughs> <laughs> Would you like to say 10 more things about yourself or just admit that it was more difficult than we thought? Oh, no, no, you said that. I'm absolutely going to. Watson. <laughs> Reverse psychology from Watson. Uh, the last time I saw Mark Watson was at 21 Soho. We were doing a gig for refugees because we're nice people. <laughs> I enjoy Point Eleven very much. Yeah, good. I know Michael from the Bake Off. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what else? My dad's called Roly Ruffle, not a fake name, real name, Roly Ruffle. Whoa, that's a good name. Great name. I have a brother. I really like doing stand-up comedy. I think it's the best job in the world. I, when talking a bit about mental health, I would say that I am anxious. 
I did a whole show about being an anxious lady. I'm also a gay lady. That comes up a lot. Oh, some people hate it. I love it. <laughs> Can't get enough of the stuff. Fair play. <laughs> I don't know what I'm up to now. I've lost count. I think it's 17. 17. Okay, I've just popped on a candle. Uh, my cat's in the other room. You might hear her shouting at some point. And I got married like three months ago. Oh, wow. That was a solid entrance, I think. It was. No one else has given quite such a thorough introduction before. Is that good? Uh, yeah, that's almost all we've got time for. <laughs> <laughs> it was a real nice mixture of the identity-defining and the extremely current, like your cat. Good, I'm pleased. Roly Ruffle is a strong... I'm going to think about that for quite a long time now. If I ever have a child, I'm going to have to think of something quite... Yeah. It's not quite as good with Chakraverti. It's quite hard, isn't it, for a first name that's going to match? Is your family Russian? Indian. Oh! Indian, so it's a Bengali name. It's like Smith over in India. Everyone's called Chakraverti there. It's very common. Oh, my God. If it's such a common Indian name, I feel quite stupid that I didn't know that. I'm very sorry. Well, have you been to India yet? I have, yeah. Oh, well, Ah. then, yes. So it is on you. (laughs) So it is me. It is me. Should I leave this? I did the nice facts about me. I thought that Michael was Russian. I've got to go. Goodbye. I think it's a strong start, personally. Do you? Oh, I feel like this podcast about mental health is going to give me more anxiety. So that's my deal. Thanks very much. Right. Let's officially start. Yes. The first question. What do you think of when we say masculinity? Like, what comes to mind? I guess, like, old fashion tropes of being big and burly and manly. Mm -hmm. Maybe... Maybe I'm thinking of He-Man. <laughs> He's been mentioned before. Is Roly Ruffle in that category? Because I can't get the man out of my head now. And I, I think I'm picturing him as a sort of mountaineer type, but that's purely based on the name, I think. No, he's like a geezer. Really? Right. Roly Ruffle's a geezer? Yeah, he's a proper geezer. And what's the difference between a geezer and a burly man? In my head, they're kind of the same thing, no? Yeah, I guess so. I guess there's a more of a softness to a geezer. Right. I don't know why, but in my mind. But I would say that I talk sort of extensively about my family on stage because mm. it saves writing a show. Yeah. <laughs> and... Hard agree, as they say. <laughs> and I've talked a lot about the fact that I'm from sort of a family of geezers and birds, and that would be how they describe themselves. Mm. Blokes. Proper blokes. And you presumably didn't feel like either one of those categories growing up. I didn't. I felt like a real sort of fish out of water from not so much my childhood, but certainly when I was a teenager, I really felt like I didn't fit in anywhere. Mm. When was your first experience of masculinity, do you think? Oh, I would say it was probably my dad, Mm. but it would be like... You know, not a very 2021 view of how we should be looking at masculinity. You know, pull yourself together, man up. And I would say that was really the ancestrally, that would be how the men in my family, they delivered coal. That was sort of the family trade. So they were coalmen. So they would be very strong men that would take massive bags of really heavy coal off a lorry. It doesn't get much more stereotypically masculine than this, really. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So you come from a long line of burly, pull-yourself-together type men. Yeah, I guess so. Actually, less burly and more, like, skinny and quick. Yeah, right. It's more of a sort of (laughs) only fools and horses. Yeah, there is a bit of that. Charming and vulnerable beneath the bluff sort of thing. Yeah, I would say so. And they all boxed. Oh, really? So there's that sort of masculinity as well. So, yeah, they all boxed and wouldn't be afraid of a fight. Is boxing the one that's real? Or is that the one that's like the name? <laughs> Sorry. Are you all right? And it's time to say good morning sports fans again with Michael Chakraverty. No, isn't there one that they stage? You're talking about wrestling? Ah, oh, right. Forms of wrestling, yes, Michael. Every time we even get close to mentioning sport on the podcast, Michael has a sort of moment like that where he doesn't sound like he's from this planet anymore. <laughs> no, but to be clear, wrestling's when they pretend, but boxing is when they actually hit each other. There are some forms of wrestling yeah. which are said to be staged. Yeah, in boxing, you actually are beating the shit out of another man. Punch each other in the face, yeah. Good to know, good clarity. Um, did you watch your dad and relatives do that? No. 
no, no, no. My dad would have been doing that before I was right. born, probably. But I certainly would have like watched boxing on the telly growing up, mm. which I hate. I really dislike boxing. You don't enjoy seeing two people slam each other in the face until they suffer brain injuries. <laughs> ah, fair enough. Yeah, I know. Call me old-fashioned. <laughs> it does seem kind of generational, though, I suppose. Like, your impression of masculinity, perhaps, when you were younger, was coming from the generation one up from you, perhaps. Mm. What was your generation's vibes around masculinity? Do you remember? I guess a lot of the boys in my school were quite obsessed by football. Mm. I don't know if you've heard of football, Michael. That's another sport. <laughs> uh, Marcus Philbin and a couple of things. Yeah, just barely. <laughs> they kick some balls towards nets, but they swap nets halfway around and they get happy or sad at the end. That's about That's right. That's it. That's about right, actually. Yeah. Or sometimes no one's happy at the end. <laughs> I suspect everyone coming together and enjoying sport. <laughs> it's just about a lovely day out, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess that would have been sort of the view on masculinity at school. I mean, occasional fights for people to sort of prove their masculinity as well. Mm. What was your relationship to it? Yeah, did you find yourself being drawn to aspects of masculinity or merely not interested in sort of the feminine tropes? You said you felt like a bit of fish out of water in general. Yeah. Was it a case of not quite ticking any boxes? Or Yeah, I think it was not quite ticking any boxes. I'd say certainly with regards to, like, fashion, which I'm quite interested in, even though... Anyone that's watching you on the Patreon won't be able to tell that today. <laughs> None of us looks like a fashionista this morning, to be absolutely fair. Yeah. <laughs> Speak for yourself. I've got a lovely black T-shirt yeah, I suppose on. you always do, to some extent. That's the thing with glasses. You're always wearing something. <laughs> that's true. I like that. Yeah. have <laughs> always made even the smallest of efforts. <laughs> a sight is an effort sometimes, I suppose, yeah. <laughs> I guess I was always more interested in a traditional sort of masculine look. Mm. Not that I was doing it very well, but as a teenager, I was very interested in dressing in quite an androgynous way trying to flirt with sort of boyish clothes but I didn't actually do it properly until I was in my 20s I don't think and where did that come from what were you modeling yourself on probably because I'm a massive les oh really the elephant in the room such a surprise <laughs> I know it's huge isn't it because until then did you think we were flirting absolutely 100% I mean by the whole wife thing oh, I know the dynamic shifts but at least we do have a possible title for the episode massive les <laughs> <laughs> Different to Fat Les, who wrote Vindaloo. Yes, that was the original Massive Les, I suppose, but it's a very different proposition, as you say. Uh, I probably should know this because I've seen you on stage enough times, but at what point were you out as a Massive Les? Was it... <laughs> or even a Les of any size? <laughs> I came out... I began coming out when I was 21. Hmm. And then I started stand-up when I was about 24, 25, and relatively quickly I was myself on stage... But that came with its own sort of uh, barriers. Mm-hmm. And What do you mean by that? This is interesting to me, obviously, as someone who also expresses himself on stage to some degree. So my most consistent heckle will be something to do with my sexuality. Like even now? Yeah, yeah. It's very seldomly about how funny I am. Don't get me wrong, I don't get heckled an awful lot. Some people listening might think that that's something that happens to comedians day in, day out, yeah. and it's really, really not. It's the most common misapprehension. Yeah, yeah. people imagine that every gig is just a battle to be heard over yeah. people screaming. But I suppose it means when you do get heckled, it is more of a shock, because at our stage, you sort of never expect it. Yeah. It is quite a male thing, this whole culture. Well, I read an article where you said that when you came out on stage, you kind of came out and said, hi, I'm Susie, I'm a massive Les, that men would sort of... <laughs> it's not quite like that, but yeah. <laughs> but men would cheer. Is that right? I've had that before yeah when I've mentioned that I'm gay men cheer which then takes you into a strange thing because it's sort of a willful lack of understanding that my lesbianism doesn't include them Mm. yeah it sort of suggests that I'm going and also instead of doing a set Here's a documentary that I'm sharing of some stuff me and my girlfriend have been up to. <laughs> Which all the times I've watched it, you've never gone down that avenue, actually. No, uh, I've so. not. I've not. But do stay tuned for the next show. Um. <laughs> <laughs> you are right, Susie. I think it's an intriguing thing, this. Because to me, as a straight guy, I, 
I don't find it sexy or in any way a come on when someone says they're a lesbian. Obviously, because by definition, that means I'm not needed. <laughs> I, yeah, you're not you're not needed or invited to the party. Yeah, I, I do find it odd that this massive stereotype of everyone like me, well, like all straight men, desperate for lesbian porn. Because again, the defining thing of lesbian porn is you're not invited. Again, you're not. It's not for you. No, you're eating a sandwich in the corner. <laughs> yeah, you're watching two people do something really well that you won't be able to improve on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I can do that in life. I don't need to watch YouTube videos of that. I can do that in Edinburgh. Yeah, I don't need to do that from home. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I can just walk around and see people doing life better than I'm doing it. I need to Google it. But yes, there's been a bit of the jeering. I mean, it happens less now because I'm in a really lovely and privileged position that I tour now. So, you know, most people that come to my shows are aware of me and have seen me before or they have been dragged by a friend who yeah. said, honestly, they're really funny. It's weird. This I don't see much heckling these days because, like you, I'm mostly doing nice gigs now. But even this weekend, Sarah Keyworth tweeted about someone yelling, get your tits out yeah. at her. And it is sort of amazing to me that this streak of well, either misogyny or whatever the fetishization of lesbianism is, the sort of adjacent to misogyny. It's weird that that's still out there. Yeah, it is. It is weird. It's. I saw that thing that Sarah shared, which must have been really unpleasant. Unfortunately, I think that most female comics have experienced a form of that. I'm sure. Yeah. More than once. But it's horrible that it's still happening. It's horrible that it happened to Sarah at the weekend. But it's less so, I think. Less so than when I first started comedy. Mm. But when I first started stand-up, which is about 11 or 12 years ago now... There would often be an audible uh, when a female came on stage. And Mark, oh, sure. I'm sure you remember yeah. this. I have seen that, yeah. You've been doing comedy for longer than me. You would have witnessed that lots, I'm sure. Yeah. And we're coming away from that now because there are so many fantastic female comics and because there's so many of them doing it on telly and we yeah. are so used to seeing women being funny now. But there is sometimes still that hangover of we've got to work that bit harder. Like the Comedy Store, for example, which is a venue that I play. And the room's great. But I will gig there with guys that have been doing stand-up for five years and they would have a fine set, but it won't be any bells and whistles. Almost every single girl that plays, about 85%, if I'm being particularly honest, of the girls that do the store would have had to have done a massive TV show and have a telepresence in order to get through that door. Like I didn't get a weekend there before I did the biggest comedy television show in the country, Live at the Apollo. Probably less so now, but it's so hard to break down those doors. Yeah. For somebody who's completely ignorant, where does that come from? I would say it comes from the fact that only, you know, in the relatively recent history of comedy, so 20 or 30 odd years ago, it would be very common to have a comedy night where there was a comedian and a stripper. So a woman's role in a comedy club has not been there for a really long time. I'd say that comedy has seemed to be a real man's game for a long time, which is yeah. really strange because I would say the audiences are usually 50-50, sometimes more women in the audience. And then, I, I don't know, I guess it's just harks back to misogyny and the fact that there were fewer women that were breaking through 20 years ago. What do you think, Mark? I think all of that is true, basically. Definitely, even when I was starting, there'd be all-male lineups very, very often and no one would turn a hair. Yeah, right. And I think because it was a man's game for so long, that perception trickled down into the brains of not just male, but also, as you say, audiences are normally 50-50. But certainly early in my career, I'd see women say to female comics, ah, I thought you were good. I don't really like watching women on stage. You know, oh. And that is a peculiar thing. At 25, I used to think... Uh, that's a bit odd, isn't it? <laughs> I would say every single female comedian that is like an open spot and above will have heard a woman say to them, I don't usually like female comics, but I liked you. Yeah. yeah, and what is that about? Is that purely just like just a perception in your head? I think that, I mean, whenever people say that to me, I always say, I know you're trying to give me a compliment, but can I give you some recommendations? <laughs> yeah. You know, because then I'll be like Sarah Pascoe, Jen Brister, Jessica Foster Q, Sarah Kendall. You know, I'll just go through Nina Conti, Kerry Goodleman. There's so many brilliant female stand-ups. Yeah, I think I'd say for the first time now, you can say that 
it's going to be impossible to uphold those ideas because yeah. the, like, there's been such a flood of brilliant women in the last really just five, ten years. I think as well, one of the things that I have, not in a mean way, but whenever women have said that to me, I always say, don't you find your female friends funny? <laughs> well, that's why I find it yeah. amazing. A man wouldn't say, I don't enjoy watching other men on stage. It's an odd thing, isn't it? And yeah, exactly. Women are noted for having like huge... It's sort of the career, isn't it? It's the career side of it that you're yeah. doing this for work yeah. somehow seems to step over yeah. a line or a boundary. I think so. No woman would say that they don't find other women funny in their life. So it has to be a yeah. perception, as you mm. said, Susie, that it's just not a woman's place to do that on stage. How have you kind of managed that in your life and your brain, Susie? Because that must be pretty exhausting. Yeah, it can be quite exhausting. I mean, it's hard to say isn't it because like there have been times when I've thought oh does my gender hold me back in stand-up or does my sexuality hold me back and then some people might just say well no we just don't think you're funny enough yeah not us so you know you have to constantly grapple with all of those different things definitely not us but it is true like you see so many to be fair shit comedians yeah uh, talking online about the things that are holding them back within the industry and you can't help you thinking think, mm, there is another reason yeah there is another reason <laughs> so if that's you you do have to question yourself very hard before you blame other factors but in your case obviously you are good at comedy so that doesn't apply well well, I don't know. I think that you just have to... I mean, I guess what I tried to do was sort of not be penned in by what other people's notes on success were. Mm. I would say that certainly something like Live at the Apollo was something that I really, really wanted to do. It became this massive need for me to get that job. Yeah. There are these markers of supposed success, which you feel yes. there is quite a sense of having to race to those landmarks. Yeah. And like I would certainly say, like, I've never been nominated in Edinburgh. That became like a massive thing. I was desperate to be nominated in Edinburgh and kept being told that I was on a long list and that kept happening year after year and I never quite got onto the shortlist. Mm. And eventually I just had to sort of go, I need to stop using other people's markers mm. for what I'm going to decide as success because Absolutely. otherwise I think I'll be miserable. Yeah. And Which I totally agree with, by the way. I'm always talking about this. Living life on your own terms rather than trying to impress other people is something I'm constantly trying to master. Yeah, always. and I think some days I genuinely do it. And then other days I'm like obsessed by the jobs that you want or the jobs that you know that you're in the mix for. Mm. But I would say doing stuff like the fact that I can tour, I think is a huge personal achievement and a real joy that, you know, and don't get me wrong, I don't play enormous venues. You know, I can do a couple of hundred in most cities, big cities, I might be able to do 500. Yeah. But that is, that's a real crowd. That's people that have paid to come out and see me. And I think that's a real, that's an achievement of something that I've really wanted to do for a really, really, really long time. It really is. And, and again, the number of women that were doing that, I reckon 10 years ago even, was mm. vanishingly small. But even now, there's still not loads of us that would do like this tour now of mine is maybe like 40 dates. Yeah, it's amazing. Mm. And then doing stuff like putting out a podcast. I've got two podcasts. We talked about this last week, the fact that you are a more experienced podcaster than we are. We don't really like it when people are in that category. <laughs> well, I don't know if that's true because the one that I do with Tom Allen, that's just us chatting. But that was something that we decided to put out because we wanted to do. I mean, if you can imagine such a thing, it was when Tom's diary wasn't busy enough. I can't imagine that, no. <laughs> <laughs> it was before he was really on telly much at all. We started it six years ago for fun and to put out something that wasn't edited and wasn't, hmm. we didn't have to like go and do a run through in order for it to be put out. Like we just wanted to put out something that was unapologetically us. Hmm. And then putting out my other podcast, which is uh, like an interview show, I was really desperate to put out positive stories of being queer. Mm, yeah. So I think that certainly for the trans community, but definitely like, you know, for all queer people, hate crime is going up in this country. I imagine it's a terrifying time to be a trans person. Mm. I think there's a lot of rumblings of homophobia that happen just constantly that I'm aware of. It was during lockdown that I started doing it. I wanted to put out something that was hopeful. Mm 
about our experience. That is the thing that takes the most time in my diary and I make. Yeah. It's not something that makes me any money, really. Uh, you know, bits and bobs, but it's not like I've got a massive sponsorship because you don't get massive sponsorships on small queer podcasts that are about celebrating queerness. <laughs> well, you speak for yourself. <laughs> Mike and I are millionaires off this day. We often ask about like male role models mm. and stuff and, you know, which men you've looked up to and stuff, but it might be worth broadening the question and, like, are there queer people that particularly inspire you given what a tough gig it is at the moment? I mean, I'm so inspired by someone like Sandy Toxvig mm. because I know, like, the sort of rumblings of hostility that I feel that I've experienced and the sort of sly comments that producers have said to me, like, do you have to wear a suit? Yeah, because this is what I wear. This is who I am. This is how I come. God, is that again? I find that so strange again because I've never had to deal with this stuff. But like, yeah. Imagine it, also, I look great in a suit. You do, so yeah. Do you get fucked. You do. You suit um... a suit. I can hardly picture you not in a suit apart from this. Like, apart it... from this, but I am wearing a t-shirt that says Tomboy. Not fair play. <laughs> yeah, so Sandy Toxvig's just been out there being herself for a long time. Just been out there fucking doing it for a long time, and she's so unapologetically herself, and she's so funny, and she's cheeky, and she's occasionally flirty with it, and she's so great on QI mm. she's also really kind I've done it just twice and yeah. the first time I was on it which is quite recently it passed me by she was so welcoming and made a proper effort yeah. to sort of chat to me beforehand yeah. it makes a huge difference that sort of thing oh my god massive I've only done it once and I never did it with Stephen Fry so I, you know yeah, same. I'm sure he was great at it as well but I, there is something very special about someone coming up to you and saying oh, we've really wanted you to do this. We really wanted you on the mm. show. And I don't think everybody does. There's a real softness and a real warmth and a real sense of being part of the game, mm. which I don't think all comics have. Yeah, Sandy's quite interesting in that regard because not only is she not domineering in the way that some hosts are, but she's actively looking to make yeah. space for other people. Yeah, she, totally. She more or less dials down her own considerable wit on that show. It just feeds pass after pass to the contestants, basically. Yeah, it's that lovely thing of when, you know, you can tell that she's looking over to see, like, have you got something to say? And so, so to know to come mm. to you, which is really lovely. Yeah. So I, I would say that I've been enormously inspired by Sandy. Have there been any kind of personal role models outside of comedy? I mean, you spoke about when you were younger, the androgyny thing. Was that just you expressing yourself or were you looking at other people? I had really no queer role models mm, at all. Really? I mean, I think it's why I'm so loudly out. Mm. Because you weren't, you didn't have those people for you kind of thing. I didn't have anything. Someone like in the industry, not from my manager or, or anything like that, but someone in the industry when I was quite new, it was at a competition for comedy, said to me, if you say that you're bisexual your career will be a lot easier. So why don't you just write some material about being bisexual? And I said, but I'm not bisexual. And she said, yeah, but I think people will bit find that easier to stomach. See, a lot of the stuff you said has surprised me, but that unfortunately does not surprise me. Yeah. The heartlessness of our industry yeah. and the sense that oh, bisexual is probably the best kind of trick for you to have. Yeah, it was really, um, part of me obviously considered it because I really wanted to do yeah. stand-up. I really wanted to do well. You know, I, I, there was such a lack of um, representation for me growing up. I mean, I've spoken about this at length before on stage or on my podcast, but, you know, I really, for a long time, I thought it was a handful of gay women. I really didn't think there was many of us, which I know sounds really... In the world. Yeah, I know it sounds really funny, mm. but I knew there were loads of gay men. I knew about Sandy Toxvig and Claire Bolding and Ellen. They were the only gay women that I even knew existed. So you thought you were one of a gang of four gay women? Yeah, I just thought there were so few of us, you know, and I knew Graham Norton existed and I knew that Stephen Fry was around and I knew that gay men were around and were present. I mean, always white gay men, but I mm. knew that they existed. But I just, that is so hard for a young person yeah. to deal with, to go, I'm so weird that I can only see three people that I'm like in the world. Mm. And I've got the internet. Yeah. Like there must be something so wrong with me. I must be so 
how am I going to ever fall in love? There's only three of them. It was yeah, and it's quite hard to meet Ellen for a start. So was, yeah, I mean, I've still not met her. <laughs> I think all three of them are taken as well. <laughs> yeah, I have met Claire Boarding and Sandy Toxvik, but they are also taken. <laughs> um, but you know, obviously, as I got, you know, the internet was in its infancy in my teens. I learned there was more gay people after not too long, but there was a very isolating moment where I thought, I guess I'll never fall in love. Yeah, I guess I'll never be really happy i guess i'll never be able to tell my family mm. when did it all change I mean, obviously it must have been quite late because you didn't even come out until yeah it was when i was 21 so i sort of worked out that i was going i was about 14 and then i had about seven years of doing anything to try and be straight mm. just desperate to try and be straight i would mm. pray to be straight and i'm not religious you know i would make a wish i would do that weird thing that i think maybe people that have similar anxieties like me will go okay I'll do this thing and then that'll make me not gay and I'll do Mm. that and I'll flick a light switch and I'll do a thing for me it was like if I get through this revolving door before it closes then I won't be gay yeah (laughs) like silly things like that yeah that is true because straight people wish shit hot going through revolving doors they really are (laughs) it's a sure sign yeah that's the thing (laughs) but that is amazing Susie that's a really long time to be actively trying to wish away yeah a core fact of your personality yeah exactly and I think now that's why I'm so like not whenever I'm on telly, but often when I'm on telly, it'll be like, how long before she mentioned she's a lesbian? And I'm like, I guess about 30 seconds. <laughs> yeah, because why not? Because you are. Because it's who I am. Yeah. Because no one's saying, I wonder how quickly before Mark mentions that he's straight. Like, no one, because it's oh, just... He bangs on about it all the time, Susie. It's exhausting. Yeah, I know. It's yeah. kind of gross. <laughs> it's that outfit energy that I give <laughs> yeah, off. Yeah, I know. I have to keep reminding people I'm into it. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd say that there was a thing then called Gaydar Girls, which is like Gaydar. It's like a grinder, but less sexy, I'd say. <laughs> Don't think anyone would call a grinder sexy, would they, really? Less looking for sex and more like looking for someone to go for a walk right. with. <laughs> oh, that's really lovely. That's kind of lovely. <laughs> My first ever girlfriend, who is now a very good friend of mine, Faye, she was the first sort of happy gay person that was a woman that I knew. She was out. Her mum and dad didn't care. Her mum and dad were lovely, lovely, supportive people. And we had loads of fun being gay. And I didn't know that was an option to be part of that world. We would go to queer nights, we'd go to gay bars and we went and watched Madonna at Astoria and queued all day to see like, and just had like loads of fun being surrounded by queer people. And all of a sudden I was like, oh. Mm. Being gay is fun. Being gay is fun. And look at all these happy gay people. Mm. Cause I think that if you grew up around the time that I did, around like 11 o'clock on like a Wednesday on channel four, there would often be a gay film and it would always be from a man's perspective. It would never be about women. And it would be either they die from AIDS or they get queer bashed. Mm. Like that was it. That was the story. Those mm. were the two I don't know, Michael, if you... That felt like that was the two queer stories that you could... Absolutely. There was no other alternative other than death or grievous harm. And it all happened in the middle of the night on Channel 4. (laughs) (laughs) There was nothing else going on. And what's really strange is I've learned this as I've grown up a bit more, but... For me, at least that was some sort of representation. But for trans people or for lesbians, you weren't even offered death. Yeah. There was just absence. <laughs> yeah, just absence. <laughs> you know, there was nothing. Gosh. Yeah, it, it makes me kind of cross in a way because, you know, we've always been there. But where are the stories about, like, the gay women that were sent to asylums in the 20s? Mm-hmm. Uh, what about women that lived as toms, which is what they called girls that used to cross-dress in, like, the 50s? Right. Uh, what about women that were AIDS angels? You know, there's a lot of documentation about gay women 
nursing men that were dying of AIDS. That's what AIDS angels were. I didn't know that. Yeah, they were men that were dying of AIDS. God, that's a story that needs telling, isn't it? It just doesn't come up in any... It's like not in any of the movies. It's not in any of the TV series. It's just... It's yeah. why in LGBT, the L comes first. It's because of because that. Because of how they cared for the... Yeah. Because of how lesbians cared for gay men during the AIDS crisis. Oh, I didn't know that either. Yeah, I mean, because why? because our story is so infrequently told. Yeah. And it's all about... It's about masculinity and that uh, in the LGBT community, the G is it's the only story you ever hear. Mm. And what's actually so lovely about your podcast... Susie out with Susie is really lovely because you hear more than just the G talking and like yes mm-hmm. the stories of gay men are really important but they come at the cost of lots of other people a lot of the time and it's really I mean I didn't even know about I didn't know Tom's was what people used to call cross-dressing women I didn't know that was a thing is that where tomboy comes from I guess so Must be. I guess so Must be. if any historians think that I'm wrong do let me know because I'm, I'm telling everyone that <laughs> or they but... will <laughs> In terms of dressing, you said you dressed quite androgynous and in suits and things like that. But there's a whole kind of school in there in the, not school perhaps, but we call them on grinder, we call them tribes. <laughs> but there's tribes of perhaps lesbians who dress in a butch way and there's lots of expressions yes. of their queer identity in that. Mm-hmm. Are there factions within the lesbian community where people kind of look down on others for dressing in certain ways or expressing themselves in certain ways? For example, in the gay community, lots of gay men look down on those who express themselves more femininely. People look on dating profiles for no femmes or mask for mask yes is there a similar thing in the lesbian community is that when both people wear masks mask for mask yeah they're both really safe it's quite common these days actually yeah yeah, yeah, I like that. yeah. especially in your accent michael mask for mask yeah <laughs> we've heard the word mask so much recently <laughs> yeah I, like there's obviously sort of quite butch women or quite androgynous women i don't think that it's as pronounced as it is with gay men because i think we don't have bars Mm. like lesbian bars don't really exist anymore yeah right we don't have lesbian spaces really so it's not like you can see those sort of specific tribes Mm. i would say that there's i'm sure there are lesbian bars but maybe i'm too old to go to them not lesbian bars there's lesbian nights now that exist but there aren't spaces that you'd say were purely lesbian really which is again not something i thought about but i'm starting to think lesbians (laughs) have been quite marginalized Susie. (laughs) i think they might have been mark Uh, if you can do anything to raise our profile that'd be really good (laughs) to my absolute best thank you Pop one of us in your next book. Oh, I can certainly By do that. Way, yeah, she was a lesbian. <laughs> and then nothing else. Yeah. <laughs> but she was. She sighed. Ah, lesbian again. Yeah, no, I don't think there is those pronounced uh, sort of looks mm. as much. But there's certainly people that would say, like, I prefer femme girls or I like butch women or... But I don't think that it's as... I mean, maybe it is, but it sounds like what you're describing is quite catty in the gay yeah. male community. <laughs> it's not even that. It can be quite oppressive, I think. For sure, yeah. And I think that that's really damaging to be like, well, don't be exactly how you're meant to be. Be something else. I think the thing that is more different about a queer women's space is that I think that it's far more... Is it common or is it acceptable or what? But I think there's more sort of queer women that would describe themselves as bisexual or pansexual. And I'm not sure that happens as much in the gay male community. I think that no. men often describe themselves as gay or straight. Now, I know before anyone gets in touch, there are pansexual men, there are bisexual men. But I think that there's a lot more bisexual women. Or certainly, maybe that's a masculinity thing. Maybe women are more up for discussing the fact that their sexuality is more of a spectrum in a way that maybe straight men aren't. Maybe there are loads and loads of straight men that are probably bisexual, but 
Mm. the trappings of masculinity won't allow them to... I think that is a solid point. Yeah, yeah. I feel like women on the whole find it easier to understand sexuality as a fluid thing yeah. rather than a black and white thing, I think. Yeah. I think it's something I've been thinking about quite a lot recently. The moniker gay, I don't think it includes often NB people. And I think if you say you're queer, you're opening yourself up a bit more in terms of a spectrum. But the word queer also has some quite negative connotations to those who are older than me yeah it's a strange one isn't it because i know that there there have been sort of older people saying to me i hate it when you use the word queer that people used to mm. shout that at us but i remember people shouting gay mm-hmm. at me mm-hmm. you know or dyke or or just lesbian but yeah i think it's about what feels right for you i like queer i prefer queer as well but i call myself gay because i worry <laughs> i worry about yeah. people yeah. <laughs> you certainly do michael you certainly do <laughs> I, I certainly worry at all times <laughs> would you like to ask susie our traditional closing question michael? Yes. because that will not upset me it will not upset her it is a safe space for you to operate in it is a safe space we ask people is it what's my favorite cake? more or less so that you can make it <laughs> yeah. for me what is your favorite cake by the way out of interest oh just anything that you want to make me he will you watch <laughs> he never stops I, but what i really want is f- just to come around and feel you to teach me to bake that's the real dream for me well let's do that he wouldn't need much persuading to do that either i love baking me i noticed that about you <laughs> so our final question is what three qualities would you build into a person we often say men but whoever you want to build into to make them the best sort of person in this world um okay a an ability to empathize so just yeah. to be able to always see things from somebody else's perspective or somebody else's point of view yeah um then I would say a willingness to listen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very good. Is that sort of the same as empathy? Well, it's but... different though, isn't it? It's, listening is crucially important and then applying yeah. uh, intelligence to that listening. is They're two different disciplines, definitely. Yeah, it's an openness. Yeah. And then I think, and I don't always think this is possible, but I think a, a willingness to try and find positivity is really helpful. It's something that certainly helped me a lot in times when I've been more anxious or found things a bit harder my dad is like the eternal optimist he's just the eternal optimist it's amazing old roly ruffle roly ruffle honestly things go wrong and he is an absolute tower of strength (laughs) and um I, i think like being strong is really unhelpful but i think like a willingness to sort of really hunt out positivity is a really good thing to try and even when you know the going gets tough and when everything's fallen to shit being able to go but what about this or what about that or maybe next time is something that I think is really useful I really like that a willingness to seek it out because it's easy to talk about being a positive person but it is more of a it's a muscle effort a lot of the time isn't it I think so like you know I think it's different for people that are sort of actually experiencing sort of mental health problems mental of course crises. Yeah. but I think that certainly for me it's something that I have to sort of remind myself up like my mum will always say to me like keep your pecker up <laughs> Which sounds like a thing for a willy, but I think she means like... <laughs> yeah, but you're right. That's back in geezer world where we started. Yeah, like keep your pecker up, dust yourself off, start all over again. That would be like our family mantra. Like get up, dust yourself off, take it on the chin, you know, and don't... And I guess that's to do with shame as well. Like there's no shame in trying and failing, but there is sometimes disappointment in not having tried. Absolutely. Keeping your eyes up for sure. That's a lovely message to end on. Thank you, Susie. It really is. Thanks a lot, Susie. Where can people find you and listen to you and see you and all of the things? So I live at Flat 45. (laughs) Uh, uh, I'm on Twitter at Susie Ruffle, Instagram, Susie Ruffle Comedy. And then if you're interested in either of my podcasts, one is called Like-Minded Friends. That's one with Tom Allen. And the other one is called Out with Susie Ruffle. Maybe you'll enjoy that. I think a lot of people here will enjoy that, to be honest. It's a gorgeous podcast. Well, thank you so much, Susie. Thanks so much. Nice to see you, babe. Yeah, you too, Susie. It's really nice. Thank you so much. Pleasure. 
Well, in a word, I would say that was, well, lovely, I suppose. Um, apparently I have no other words to use this afternoon. <laughs> so wasn't that a lovely episode with Susie? In the meantime, between now and next week, please do go back to our back catalogue if you haven't heard any of our previous episodes. There's some gorgeous ones back there. Some lovely ones, some might say, or I might say. And do give us a five-star rating if you feel so inclined. I would accept a four, I think, but a five would make me happier. Us happier, sorry. Mark is still on the podcast. I haven't just taken over. Uh, give us a review, like us, and do all the things on social media, which is at Mankind Podcast or drop us an email at mankindpodcast at gmail.com. Mark, who is currently, as we've said before, in Swindon, will be in other places apart from Swindon. Please do have a look on his website or go on Google and just find out his tour dates. I went to see it the other week. I promise it's actually quite funny. I say quite. I'm going to say very. I'm going to say it's very. It's a lovely, a love. well, it's a lovely evening. What else do I have to say? Oh yes, lovely, uh, <laughs> lovely John Luke Roberts is with us next week. Uh, he is a absurdist comedian and actor. He's great. It's going to be a great chat, and I promise Mark will be there saying words other than lovely. Uh, that's it from me. I think. Yeah. Have a nice week. Yeah. Bye. <laughs> Love. <laughs>